We are going to continue our uh, look at creation. We have this kind of a little three-part breakaway. We've been talking about the, the knowledge of God, understanding God, growing deeper in understanding of God, and we came upon the topic of creation. And up until the point where we got to creation, really everything that we had been talking about to that point was widely agreed upon by everybody in this room. And if you were to go down to even Trinity Presbyterian or several other churches around this area and you were to teach the same things, everybody there would be in agreement as well. There was virtually nothing that Christians have ever disagreed on uh, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history until we get to creation. Now, what we did was we looked at part one, and I gave you a packet. You don't have to have it with you or anything like that. I printed it off so that I could recall because I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So uh, otherwise, but we talked about uh, up at the top here of our, of our page, we have the quote that's kind of made its, it made surface sometime around the, the Reformation and, and has kind of been the mantra of the church ever since, that in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And we kind of took that approach, especially in regards to topics that we disagree on or that there may be some disagreement on, that we need to identify first, what are the essentials? What are the things in which we should be unified and, uh, and united on? And identify all of those and just kind of go through and enumerate all of those. And we, the first part of the creation talk was really basically building what are the things that we're unified on. And what I said there was the first thing is that God created the world out of nothing. He created everything ex nihilo. So it means there was literally not a thing beyond the triune Godhead, and he spoke into existence and created everything out of no material that existed prior to that. Everything in the universe was created. Uh, God created Adam from dirt and created woman from man. And that was really important because we, we have to really understand the Christian creation account, or, or really even the Judeo-Christian creation account, as separate from some other creation views that would say that man sort of either evolved or man came about in any other way other than he was a distinct, he and she were a distinct creation of God. Uh, and the Bible's account that God created Adam from the dirt and created woman from man is irrefutable and widely recognized throughout church history as this is how God did it. He created man and woman in his image to glorify him. This, is, this was the purpose, his purpose in creation in creating them. That creation was a Trinitarian effort. This is also important because we're understanding that from the very beginning, God was triune. And what that means is that Jesus... Christ, or the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is eternal. He's not, he wasn't created. He is eternal. He and the Holy Spirit were, and God the Father were all there in a united effort in creation. All three, of, all, all three persons of the one God were there in, in creation. So it's not like uh, God the Father spoke into existence first and created the Son and then the Holy Spirit. That's not what happened. We're, we're identifying there, all Christians have agreed throughout um, throughout the history of the church, and really even the Jews as well, that, that well, not the Jews on Trinity, sorry, that, that God is eternal, and we would say uh, that the Trinity is, is, is eternal, and they were there from the beginning. Um, you, you see in the, in the creation account, God says, before he creates man, let us create man in our image. 
and we understand that in the church as being uh, the, the divine Godhead, the, tr- the triune Godhead. Uh, we also said that creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. So there, there's a, a, a really important point that we're trying to make here and understand here is that we believe in a God that is both distant in that he is holy and he is set apart from his creation and he's not dependent on us, but he is also imminent, meaning he is also close. So we believe in the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, who stepped into the created order and became man like us was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, right? So we believe in a God who has stepped into his creation. He's imminent and he's, Im- he's intimately involved in the lives of the people that are here. That's really important because the vast majority of the rest of the world does not believe that, okay? So he is both transcendent and he is, he is imminent. So creation is distinct from him, yet it's also dependent on him. Uh, we also said that creation, uh, that, that we were built for, we were created, the whole creation is built to worship God, and that the universe that God created was very good. Now, all of these things that we identified in part one are true of really every Christian throughout the last 2,000 years. None of them are going to disagree with that. Where there's disagreement on this, there we don't find a Christian, <laughs> Uh, in other words, these things you will find repeated, uh, various forms of these you'll find repeated throughout the creeds of the history of the church. This was a requirement for salvation. You believe that this God that we worship created everything out of nothing, spoke into creation, that he's triune. Several of these things, all of these things make their way into the creeds at some point or another. Um, Then we went to week two where we looked at a, a, a view of creation that was, that identified that uh, acknowledged all of those points in, that we're unified on, but understood uh, the the text of Genesis one two different than others. So, it, it basically, offering a different opinion, what, what typically is referred to as old earth creation, and we kind of went through the various views, what those individuals that would support old earth creation, how they would understand Genesis 1 and 2, and how they would reconcile all of those things. And before we started on that, in the liberty section, basically, we looked at uh, some statements made by Francis Schaeffer that were kind of like a, a sort of a guideline for us as we approach liberty. And the first thing that Francis Schaeffer says there, it's in your packet this week, uh, is, is number one there. He says, when all the facts, this is his statement, and I, and I liked it, I think, it's, I think it's good. When all the facts are rightly understood, there will be no final conflict between Scripture and natural science. That's the very base of what we could say about any disagreement that would take place. You may have your opinion, I may have my opinion on how to read Genesis 1 and 2, but in the end, this is what we're saying, that there, if, if all truth was known, no disagreement would exist between Scripture and natural science. So the, the black cloth is pulled back, and we find out if Bigfoot exists, we find out who shot JFK, we find out all of this information. Along with that, we know all the truth about how old the earth is and all of that kind of thing. There will be no final conflict between what is revealed in Scripture and what is under that black cloth, basically. Let's say it that way. And then he said, he went through and enumerated, this is again Francis Schaeffer, he went through and enumerated in this book, 
a few things that we can say are possibilities in regards to Genesis 1 and 2. Looking at the text, these things would be possible to interpret. So he says, first, there would be a possibility that God created a grown-up universe. And we'll talk more about that tonight. But there's a possibility that God created a grown-up universe, that when you look at it, 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 it appears aged, uh, even, if it's, even if it's not. There's a possibility of a break between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, or between 1-2 and 1-3. There's a possibility of a time gap or a break there. It, the text doesn't say that it's not there, so it, it, there's potential it could have happened. There's a possibility of a long day in Genesis 1, meaning that the word day can mean a a extended period of time. It doesn't have to mean 24 hours. At least the word yom in Hebrew doesn't have to mean that. There are examples where it means either a 24-hour period or a longer time. So it's possible it could be a long day, a God-sized day, as it, as it were. There's a possibility that the flood affected the geological data. That, that's possible. Um, it's, we, I guess we don't really know. Um, the use of the word kinds in Genesis 1 may be quite broad. And that was basically to say it may be that God didn't create, that kinds doesn't equal the species, that he didn't create the species level, that he created a, a broad level. So it may say, say something to, to the effect of, you know, could, could have created a cat. And out of that comes all the various jungle cats and various kinds of cats that we know of in the world today, right? Um, that, that's possible in the use of the word kinds in Genesis 1. There's a possibility of the death of animals before the fall. Uh, when God gives the decree of death, in every instance that, I, that I'm thinking of off the top of my head, but I think every instance he gives the, the verdict of death, it is always pointed toward mankind. So it just doesn't say anything about animals. That doesn't mean that animals weren't a subject of that, but it also means that they, they couldn't have died. It also doesn't mean that they couldn't have died before the fall. Um, there's a possibility there. Um, where the Hebrew, the last one there, where the Hebrew, Hebrew word bara is not used, there is a possibility of sequence from previously existing things. So several times throughout the Genesis 1 account, the word bara is not used. And sometimes it's translated created, but the word that typically is used, I think it's asaf, if I remember right, um, can, can also mean came from something that already existed. So the very first two words in, in the Hebrew text, bereshit, which means in the beginning, bara, God, uh, sorry, created, Elohim, God. So in the beginning, God created. That word bara is out of nothing. That's what that means. But there are times throughout the Genesis 1 and 2 text where they don't use the word, the author does not use the word bara, and it's possible that that could mean that he brought something out of something that was already there. Um, so that, that's also possible. Uh, that's just taking into account the, the language and the, the way the 
chapters are set up, those things are possible. Then we decided some other things, too, about uh, liberty as far as differences of opinions and things like that. The second thing there is some theories about creation seem clearly inconsistent with the teachings of Scripture. So that what that's designed to say is not every opinion is a good one just because it's a different opinion. So some opinions are better than others, and we have to learn to basically train our eye to say to how we evaluate. Just because we're saying that there can be liberty in some area doesn't mean that it's just, wee, you know, a free-for-all. You can just go wherever you want. What, what liberty in the Christian context means is essentially the fence, po- the fence posts of orthodoxy have been built, but inside the yard there is some room to, to play. And we just need to understand where that the fence is, and so that would tell us where when we've crossed the line, essentially. Um, and so that's what it's saying there. Throughout and the number three there, throughout the history of the church, there has never been complete consistency uh, consensus on the age of the earth, nor on the nature of the biblical account in Genesis one through three. And the age of the earth has never made it into the church's creeds. And the only point that we were trying to make, or I was trying to make there, is that, um, that because it's never made its way into the church's creeds, we believe in the faith once delivered to the saints, once for all delivered to the saints. That what was necessary for salvation was given to Paul just as well it has been given to us. And the age of the earth has never made it into that qualification for salvation. And so, uh, now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean every opinion is a good one, but it, it, it should give us some pause before we say, this is required in order to be saved, such as an old earth position or a young earth position. Um, the fourth there, science cannot overturn clearly revealed biblical truth. Now, we know that's true. It doesn't matter what a whole world of scientists say. They can't overturn what's clearly revealed in Scripture. However... Historical interpretation of Scripture should weigh heavily into what's considered clearly revealed. So if it is that clearly revealed, then we should see that reverberate throughout the history of the church. Okay? You may have any questions on those? I know I kind of went through that fast, but there's recordings on the internet. You can go back and listen to them if you want to. Um, but that was the gist of what we talked about in Liberty. Now, tonight, what we're going to look at are the... What, what I think are probably the most common young earth arguments. And we're going to look at, for one, the... Uh, <laughs> we're going to look at, for one, the... Uh, sorry, that was funny. Let's um, <laughs> get an high five, man. Uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought altogether. Uh, I was laughing, so I'm sorry. Um, but we're looking at the, the most commonly held views of young earth. And the way that I tried to approach this as best I could was think, out of these three, really it's two and a half views, and I'll explain why it's two and a half in a minute, but really out of these two and a half views, there are some things that they have in common that all of them, I think, would affirm. And then there are some very subtle differences between the two, and I kind of wanted to lay those out. And the reason that I say it's two and a half, because if we go to step one and you don't necessarily agree with everything there, but you agree with some things, and then we go to step two and you don't necessarily agree with everything there, but you agree with some things, that's the half, because it's kind of a merger of, of the two. There's a, some, 
the good things of this one and the good things of this one that it kind of puts together, I think. So um, let's look at this, the, the commonalities between the arguments. This is what I think all of the young earth arguments, that, at least that I know of, the young earth arguments that I could see, are all in agreement on. They would say the age of the earth is between 6,000 years and 20,000 years old. That they're the young, that's what we mean when we say young earth, that they would, they would see creation as some time within that time frame. Now, you could potentially find a young earth person out there that's like, ah, I think it was 40,000 years. Okay, but largely speaking, it's going to be in that window that they see creation as about that old. In that, they would say God created Adam and Eve between 120 and 144 hours after the earth was formed. That was the only way I could phrase that, 120 and 144 hours after the earth is formed. It's the only way I could phrase that and not get back into the old earth argument of the long day period. So I, if I said the sixth day, some old earth people would be like, I believe he was created on the sixth day too, but they see a long day, right? So I was trying to say like, how could I define this? 120 hours after the earth was formed, God said, God created man, all right? He started the creation process and was finished by the 144th hour, okay? That's what they mean by the sixth day. Um, and then they would also say, they would also, uh, there's a rejection in, in, most, in all of these views, there's a rejection of all secular claims to the knowledge of the age of the earth, and what that means, what I mean by that is all secular claims now, that as of right now, the vast majority of everything that I see as far as secular claims are all uh, uh, laying out an old earth view. Now, so they would basically say all of that's wrong. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's, uh, if they're uh, intelligent design or not, but even the intelligent design people that I know that would not believe in the triune Godhead, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that, that kind of thing, are not, are not Christians, but they're intelligent design. All of them that I know of are laying out an old earth argument. And so they would say all the secular claims that you're hearing to knowledge of the truth of the creation and the age of the earth are all wrong. Um, and then they would also say they would, there's a rejection of virtually all evolutionary models, theistic or Darwinian. So they're rejecting all evolutionary models. But I want to read this next one because this is also, this goes, in, uh, they go together. There's an acceptance, mostly, uh, I think from all of them, of microevolution within defined parameters. Okay, so just think about this for, for just a second. The evolutionary models would say, hey, mankind, whether it's theistic or Darwinian, doesn't really matter which evolutionary model it is, both of them would say God created, or let's say God created a single-celled organism, or a single-celled organism is here, and from that single-celled organism came about all these species that we see today. Theistic evolution would, would put God in the situation and say, at various points, he kind of spurred it along, or you know, divvied two up and one became a cat and one became a dog or whatever. And basically kind of, but point is he's interjecting in, in the creation process. He's dividing things up. And so all of these would reject all of those evolutionary models. In fact, that would, uh, on number C there, that would even be true of the old earth Christians. They would also reject all the evolutionary models. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
Um, but there is acceptance of, largely speaking, of microevolution, meaning you could have a dog and eventually be a golden retriever or be a Dalmatian. And within the genome of the dog is the ability to microevolve depending on the environment. But they would say, all of them would say, but that dog can only get so big and it's only going to ever be a dog. Like, it's, it's not going to ever be anything else. It's not going to change into a cat or something like that. And, and uh, older Christians would also say that as well. Um, then uh, on E, the days listed, this is also what they would say, the days listed in Genesis 1 are six, or seven if you count the Sabbath, six literal days. These are 24-hour periods, not God-sized days. These are 24-hour periods. I think all of them say that these are six literal days. I haven't met a young earth creationist yet that would expand those into age, ages, you know, or God-sized days or whatever. But there may be one out there. I just don't know of them. Um, and, and below this are some, some sort of feathers in their cap, some, sort of, some things that they kind of say are reasons to believe that these are six or seven 24-hour days. The first thing is there's this repeated phrase as you look through chapter one, every time it gets to the end of a day, every time there's this, this phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. And it would say on the first day, on the second day, on the second, it, all the way up until the seventh. It doesn't say that on the seventh, but it says it for all other six days. There was evening and there was morning. The, second, the next thing they say is that the, the third day can't be very long because the sun does not come into being until the fourth day. And plants can't live long without light. That seems pretty straightforward argument, right? Is, you know, you, uh, God created the, the plant life on the third day and the sun didn't come about till the fourth day. So, well, how long can they live without, without light? Now, each one of these statements that I'm making, I don't, they're not gotcha statements, okay? Like the old earth creationists would, would have a response to these. So there's, there's back and forth. We could do this all day. Uh, it, it'd just be here all day. Uh, the, the, the word, the next one here, the word day in the fourth commandment appears to be a literal day. So they say, you look at the 10th commandment and it sa- or the 10 commandments and the fourth commandment says, uh, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Well, do they remember the Sabbath age? No, he means the Sabbath day. So when you look back at the Sabbath day that God took, well, it stands to reason then that it means the same kind of day there that it means in the Ten Commandments. That's the argument anyway. Um, then the, the last one here, Mark 10.6, you should have this down below your, your item there. Mark 10.6 seems to imply that Adam and Eve were not created billions of years after the beginning of creation. Somebody read Mark 10.6 out loud. should be on your packet there. Right. From the beginning of creation, God the Yeah, so the argument goes, well, if you look at that, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So they're saying it doesn't seem like there would be billions of years there. Now, again, each one of these have responses from old earth people, obviously. I'm not saying that these are uh, gotcha statements, but they're kind of the direction that the argument is going. Um, Then they would also, all of them would also reject and say, say, there was no death of any kind before the fall. There was no death of any kind before the fall. 
Now, does everybody understand those arguments that they're making? Those are common amongst all of these views. So I'm going to try to get to the differences in the various views, but those are the things that would be in common amongst, amongst those views. And that's what they would be saying about, about the creation of the earth, the age of the earth. Okay. Any questions? No questions? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, there's multiple answers on that. So that gets into the differences of views that we're going to talk about in just a second. But it depends on which young earth creationist you ask. They're going to emphasize different things. And we'll, we'll kind of enumerate that in a second. Ryan! <laughs> Did I encourage you? <laughs> <laughs> he asked a better question than you did. I like it. Um, okay, so here let's, let's kind of go into the two and a half different views um, that we've got here. The first view is what we call, the, the blank there is mature creationism. The idea is that God made the earth with the appearance of age, that it's mature creationism. So in what they would say about mature creationism, this is going to be on point A here, is that just a natural reading of Genesis 1 and 2 would suggest that Adam and Eve were created as adults, right? That seems pretty reasonable, that he didn't create two babies. And we would also, I would also say on that, that not only did he create them as adults, but the fall in Genesis, that we read about in Genesis 3, I mean, most likely couldn't have happened too long after creation, right? I mean, there's no kids in the picture. I think we would be theologic, it would be theologically problematic if they had kids before the fall, right? So, so they, they don't have kids, and, and yet, and, and they're, they're there together in the garden. It probably isn't that long, is what they would say. So here you've got, um, they're, they're created as adults. They don't grow into their age. They're given to each other in marriage nearly right away, so it would seem like they're adults whenever they're there. And then, they, so they would say, like, about this, as evidence of this old, kind of created with age, if you think about it for a second, when, they, when God created the trees, if you were to cut a tree down in the garden, would it have rings there? Probably so. I mean, it's, it's of, it's of uh, a fruit-bearing age. The trees and the plants in the garden are bearing fruit for them to eat from, and God even tells them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and the tree of life both are, have fruit on them, right? So you would think then that they were created with some sort of age. So the kind of the premise being if Adam and Eve looked aged, looked maybe, I don't know, 25, let's say, would the tree look 25? Probably. At night, when they look up into the night sky, do they see stars there that are you know, trillions of miles away or however far they are away, and they can see the light from them. So when God created the star and the light, did he bring the light down to earth so that they could see it, right? Uh, you know, I, I suppose the answer would be yes, that there's a apparent age there. So then it stands to reason, they would say, that the geological formations, this last point there, geological formations, when originally created, must have had a similar appearance of age. So you get a rock, 
that you can now like pull a sample from and test, and it shows to be, I don't know, let's say 4.4 billion years old, but, well, surely it had some age when God created that rock, right? It wouldn't have tested one day whenever you pulled the, the, the sample from it, would it? Uh, so that, that's kind of the, the point of view is that, hey, um, even the geological, if, if Adam was that way, if, let's say, the trees were that way, if the stars were that way, couldn't the rocks have been that way too? And so you would have this uh, a supposed age that uh, wasn't necessarily through evolution or through some time uh, gap there. But then in this view, in the mature creationism view, many in this view would be okay with some gaps in the genealogy. When we talk about gaps in the genealogies, next week we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, and my hope is in get it done in one week, is to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and then probably rope in Genesis 5 just to kind of wrap it up. But look at Genesis 1 and 2 and demonstrate how each view, each credible view, would interpret the text that's actually on the page. And so but what they're saying here um, is that, I lost my place here, um, that the, the genealogies that are laid out in Genesis 5, they say, like, Adam was... I can't remember the years off the top of my head, but Adam was, you know, 300 years old when he had uh, uh, Seth, and then he lived another, you know, 600 years after that, so he died at the year 900, right? And so you have there a timeline of events, and so what this view is okay with, to some extent, is that when it says, you know, so-and-so had this child at this age, it really could have been that child's great, 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 great grandfather. And, but this is his grandson that's listed here. We, the reason they think that, is, or they're okay with that, is because we see that in Hebrew genealogies later on in the Old Testament. And then we see it in the book of Matthew, where so-and-so had this child, but there's really three generations in between them. That, that is, is in reality in the, in the genealogy. The reason that a lot of people think that is because when you look at the genealogies of Genesis 5 and the genealogies of Genesis 10, they're very similar. You have a, a man having uh, two sons. I, I'm remembering this off the top of my head. A man having two sons, 10 generations, followed by a man that has three sons. And you see that in both the Abraham narrative and the Noah narrative. And so it's a, it look, they, they look so strikingly parallel that a lot of people say that seems to be with intention that the author did this, that he just left out some genealogies or some, uh, some generations in the genealogy. And so to, to make them parallel, to show here's a family that God is preserving to save humanity, and here's a family that God is preserving to save humanity. It's kind of the both the parallel. That's why people say that. Um, so, but when, when you look at that kind of, that, that, um, that point of view, the, the, the mature creationism would say, we're okay with that. But you're not getting millions of years out of that. Let's be clear. Like, Moses didn't write this down and go from, you know, Adam to Seth and then Seth to his child and, like, leave off 450,000 kids. Okay, that's not what we're saying. And, and, the, and I think everybody, even the old earth creationists that see gaps in the genealogies, they're not getting the age of the earth out of those gaps, right? 
That's, that's not what they're saying. The gaps are, are somewhere else. But the, they're, they're saying they're okay with some gaps in the genealogies. Uh, they would also say in, this, in the mature creationism they would, uh, th- that we should view current dating methods with extreme skepticism. Um, and, and the reason they would say that is because we cannot be sure about the constant rate of decay since the beginning of creation. So we should see these methods with extreme skepticism and because we can't be sure about the constant rate of decay since the beginning of creation. The, the, the mature creation view typically looks at, doesn't really focus too much on the flood and focuses more on the, cur- the current methods for dating rocks and fossils and things like that. And would say, eh, we need to be really skeptical about how we view these dating methods. And that, listen, I'm not a geologist, okay? So bear with me. Um, but basically what they're saying is uh, that the, the way we date a, a rock would be to measure the rate of decay of an isotope, okay? The, the rate at which it decays. And we've observed these isotopes over the last 100 years. So we've established a consistent rate of decay. This is, this is the rate at which they break down. So then, if they break down at this rate, then let's figure out how far it's broken down, and then we can extrapolate then the year when it was around. That's, that's the basic premise of radioisotope data. So what they're saying is, the reason we should be skeptical is we're not sure beyond that 100 years if there's a constant rate of decay. So who's to say 500 years before that, that they decayed much faster or much slower? That's not saying that that's a foolproof solution, but you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, what uh, um, Bill was talking about this past Sunday in church, is that you know, I, I'm presenting the liberty that we have in understanding the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, and I hope to do so in a thorough way. At the same time, it can never be thorough enough. And so if you look at this and you go, that's, that's my view, but I don't understand some of these objections to my view, then that's, the impetus is on you to read and to study, to, f- to figure it out. Because the reality is when we go out to the world around us, people out there are asking questions about this. And are... And, to the point, not even really asking questions anymore, but challenging on the facts. And so when you say, I'm a Christian, this is the way I read Genesis 1 and 2, there's going to be a challenge there. Well, I don't believe the earth is 6,000 years old. I don't believe the earth is 20,000 years old. It's way older than that. It's on, the impetus is on you to have understood that objection, and, and how would you overcome it, taking on your position? Right? Do you understand that? that? The impetus is on us as individual Christians to read and study and investigate on our own. It's, it's, it's important. And so when we look at this, um, if, I mean, radio, if you think you might encounter some arguments, this is your position, but you think you might encounter some arguments about radioisotopes and <laughs> dating, then <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> Learn all you can about uh, dating, uh, if you think that's going to be a, a, a source of, of debate for you. Um, all right, so we should, we should approach them with extreme skepticism. The other thing that they would say is, what effect did the fall and subsequent curse have on the dating? 
What effect did the fall and subsequent curse have on the dating? God cursed the ground so that Adam would sweat when he's plowing the fields and he wouldn't be able to grow things as well. Well, what effect did that have on everything else? Who's to say that there weren't some years that were kind of, kind of thrown in there too? You never know. I mean, right? Like that's, that's basically what they're, they're kind of saying. We don't know the extent of the curse, and that could have been even some, um, I think many people would say, Age is a curse. <laughs> there's, certain things about, there's certain things about age that are not fun. You know? um, and I've, deter- I've determined, just so y'all know, I know some people are thinking back in their past and they're like, at what age, what age was it when I got out of bed and everything started to hurt? And it's 33. I figured that out, just so you know. At 33 years old, in case you were thinking back, you're like, I can't remember what year that was. I'm here to tell you it was 33. I'm 34 now, so for the last year, every time I get out of bed, I go, ah, <laughs> before I have to kind of stretch out. So just so you know, that was what year it was. So anyway, age in some regards is, it can be a curse, right, in, those, in, in, in that sense. And so, you know, maybe the, the curse on creation added some kind of uh, breadth to the years that were there. Um, and then there's some challenges to this view. And, and I don't want you to just gloss over these challenges. These are, I mean, these are serious criticisms of this debate. Some would argue that strictly holding to this view would make God an apparent deceiver. So if you think about, uh, like, let's say, looking at a star, and we're, we're measuring the distance that light would travel to get here, all of the clues in our universe in relation, let's say the stars, for instance, would point us towards an aged earth, uh, an, an old earth. And so the, 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 the critique would say, well, wouldn't that make God giving us all the clues of age kind of like he's pulling the wool over our eyes? Wouldn't that indicate that God is somehow kind of deceiving us in some way? And there's some, uh, and, and the, I'm not saying whether that's a great argument or not. I'm just saying you can expect that coming back from you. If you're sitting next to somebody and you're talking about this point of view, those are things that you're going to have to overcome. How would, does that give any ethical implications to God? The other one would say, which is very similar but just slightly different. Others would say that uh, for God to intentionally scatter fossils would be deception. Now, not everybody in here who would see, who would agree with the mature creationism is going to, is going to say that God threw fossils around. But some do. Some believe in a mature creation, and they would also say that the fossils aren't real, that, they're, that God just kind of, to create sort of an aged design, the dinosaur fossils amount to effectively curtains on the house of God, all right? That they kind of just are a little bit of decoration and just kind of sort of like the skeleton in the corner of your teacher's classroom, right? It's there to kind of create the ambiance of science, but it's not no one thinks that that's a real guy, right? Like that that was ever a guy. So that is a, that is a, a point. And if, if somebody were to, to say that, it might create some serious ethical implications on God because then it's not only that there was apparent deception, but intentional deception, that he hid these fossils and had some, added some age to them to kind of really throw us off the scent, I guess, as it, as it were. Now, again, I think probably most people in this room who would hold to that version of the young earth view probably don't think that about dinosaurs. 
but would probably say dinosaurs you know, lived with man or whatever and, and probably wouldn't say that. But just know that that might be an objection that you would have to kind of diffuse. Any questions on the first view, the mature creation view? Pretty straightforward? Got it. Okay. Um, the second view would say uh, that God made the earth 6,000 to 20,000 years ago. So somewhere in that window. But geological dating has been affected by the flood. And this is, uh, this is called uh, neocatastrophism. Neocatastrophism. Catastrophe like... Catastrophism like catastrophe. So there's a, a, a new catastrophe that affected all of the dating. So everything's been affected by the flood. So they would say the flood at the time of Noah is significantly altered, has significantly altered the face of, of the earth within a year rather than within billions. So you look at the Grand Canyon and the flood was so catastrophic that all of these like significant geological formations were created within, within a year. Uh, including the 240 days or whatever it was of the, of the flood, that it, it, uh, by the time the waters had subsided and all of that, that, that it took within that year for it to form the Grand Canyon and all of these different things. Um, so, David, here we, here's their answer to your question on the fossils. Uh, they would say the flood deposited fossils in layers of thick sediment all over the earth. So... The flood was so catastrophic that it obviously kind of not only altered years, but also just scattered the fossils about in various strata of the, of the soil layer. Not a geologist, right? <laughs> I'm sure a geologist would, be, would, would argue and banter back and forth with these groups. Yeah. Scattered fossils or scattered the creatures? That um, I would probably say, yeah, both and. Because, you know, what you have to, to create a fossil, again, not a geologist, uh, but is a, a rapid death. It, it creates a fossil. And my, my understanding is that a fossil can be created in not that long a time. Like a, a, in a really relatively short time, a fossil can be created. But it has to happen through rapid death and then quick covering is essentially what, I, what I've always understood as a fossil being created. So it, 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 I would say it could be a both and, that you get a, a creature dying because of the flood and the fossil is created, maybe covered over with a tar pit or something, and then you have other fossils that were, were also in the same situation but then got scattered throughout various layers of, of dirt and debris and, and things like that. Uh, does that make sense? Another question? Yeah, the last A on the second page. Last A on the second page, within a year rather than billions of years. Is that, is that the one? Yeah, within a year rather than billions of years. Uh, and then the flood deposited po- fossils in layers of thick sediment all over the earth. Now, um, there's two, two big challenges to this view, and these also are not insignificant challenges. This is kind of a big deal, and I'll explain why in a second. The first challenge is the lack of persuasion of other credible geologists. Okay, um, now think about this for just a second. The critique or the, the pushback on this view, the challenge to this view, would say would, would is the point that they're making is let's let's take a look at Darwinian evolution. Okay, there's secular. 
people that have written books. Michael Behe comes to mind, Darwin's Black Box, wrote it in the late 90s. A secular geologist is not a Christian and has written a book in deep critique of Darwinian evolution and saying it is not the solution. And I, in my, it's my understanding that Michael Behe has actually become an uh, inte- intelligent design proponent. He's a proponent of intelligent design. Originally not. Originally followed Darwinian evolution, but opened up the books, looked at the facts, and was like, this is not, this is not a great explanation for this. And is now an intelligent design proponent. And so, so with intelligent design or Darwinian evolution, you have plenty, uh, plenty of secular people coming out of Darwinian evolution and, and, and saying intelligent design makes a lot more sense of the data, okay? But what the critique, the pushback on this view is you don't see that kind of persuasion with young earth view. And Why? It's more of a question, an obstacle to overcome, if that's your view, is why don't we see people coming out of old earth view and into um, young earth view? Let's say they're creationists, a creationist like Michael Behe. He's an old earth cre- uh, intelligent design proponent. Why, why doesn't he come to uh, young earth? Like we don't see that kind of movement like we do with the Darwinian creation. Does that make sense? The argument makes sense? He, uh, he, I don't think he is. I think he's a biologist, honestly. But it was just an example. You, you get what I'm saying. It sort of just depends on what. Right. But, you know, in, in Darwinian evolution, you get, uh, we're getting geologists, biologists, you know, I'm running out of ologists, honestly. <laughs> but you're, you, we're seeing a, a lot of them across the board come out of Darwinian evolution and going, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't explain the data. Intelligent design explains a lot more about what's going on here than anything else. Now, that's by far not the, the, the uh, norm, I would say, but still we're seeing that. And the, the pushback is, why aren't we seeing that with young earth if, if, it's, if, it, if it's supposedly so credible? What are they seeing that you're not seeing? And then the other uh, pushback would be um, that some of the conclusions are theoretical, that it is difficult to create, to recreate a catastrophe of that magnitude to see if it really does change the dating like, like the, we suppose the flood would. Because that's essentially what's being said here is that the, the flood was so catastrophic and so uh, deep and so much pressure being put on these fossils on the, on the seabed that the, the dating is not reliable anymore or you get these kind of skewed crazy dates. And so the, the, the point here is, well, all of those conclusions are theoretical. Like, we can't recreate in a laboratory the kind of catastrophe that the flood would have created to see if it really does produce that kind of skewed dating. And so, again, uh, just obstacles to overcome. If that's your view, those are, those, that's going to be some of the pushback that you have coming at you. Um, but then the third view is a combination, somewhat a combination of those two with some added uh, extra sauce to it. Um, if you will. And, and, and there's, a, there's quite a few that will be persuaded, I think, by this argument as well. The, the main proponent of this argument would be uh, Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis. I think you probably, that, culturally, that's probably the most familiar to you right now. It, it says, God made the, or he says, God made the earth in 4004 BC, but the flood and current dating methods have skewed the dates. So you see that? Like, he's saying both the flood 
and the current dating methods are both skewed. There's a problem with the dating methods. They don't date it right. And there also was the, the flood caused, you know, all these different things. Kind of sort of a combination of those two. But he, he's pretty dogmatic about the earth being 6,000 years old or really close, like right there at 6,000 years old. Um, so he, he, the, they say, uh, and, and I say just him, it's not just him, there's, there's plenty of others, but um, the genealogy in Genesis 5 uh, does not skip generations. So they would look at the genealogy in Genesis 5 and say, it's a straightforward, that's a linear account right there that they're telling you. That's pivotal to that argument of getting a 4004 BC, because if you go back through the dates and you just trace them back and do the math, you're going to come out to right at 4004 BC. Uh, and, then the, and then he said, they, they say about that, uh, or what you need to know about that, the, the current dating of creation goes back to Irish Archbishop James Usher. He's the first one to go back in the Genesis account and basically do the math all the way back to Adam. And this is coming about the time of the Reformation. So you see a lot of the people in the Reformation, uh, Luther, Calvin, a lot of them coming out of the Reformation saying, following his, his lead and basically saying, well, Luther kind of came before him. But, but anyway, essentially following his lead and saying, yeah, about 4004 B.C. or the earth is about 6,000 years old, roughly. Um, and so they date these genealogies all the way back to Adam. They also would say that dating of the radioisotope decay measured for less than 100 years is assumed to remain constant over the course of millions and billions of years. So the radioisotope decay, radioisotope decay, measured for less than 100 years is assumed to remain constant over the course of millions and billions of years. Um, but they, say, they would say, hey, look, the, the flood would have greatly, greatly affected that, so it, could, it would change the way radioisotopes decay. But then they use as an example the eruption of Mount St. Helens in the late 80s. So Mount St. Helens uh, creates these lava flows and, and it, it you know, pours out onto the ground. And the, in 86, so they're watching, geologists are watching this lava harden and cool on the ground. And so the lava hardens and cools in, I think 1986 is the year. In 1996, they go back to this cooled lava they take a core sample out of the cooled lava and they do a test uh, of the radioisotope decay on that cooled lava. And it came out to 2.8 million years old. Well, it's only 10 years old. So, so you got that problem going for you, right? <laughs> you're dating the earth and you're dating it to millions of years. And their point is not that everything came out of a volcano, but... Well, if that could happen to volcano, volcanic ash and volcanic rock, well, what would happen if it was under, you know, miles of floodwaters or miles of, you know, debris and various things like that and pressure? Um, now, the challenges to this view are obviously, since it's a combination of the others, the other challenges also apply in some degree here. But there's also one other thing that's uh, sort of difficult, a little bit more difficult, is there seems to be coming out of this view... A, like a dogmatic and nearing creedal adherence to something that's highly debatable. And uh, uh, let me repeat that. Dogmatic and near creedal. Creedal. Dogmatic and near creedal. In other words, if you don't believe this, you don't believe the Bible. 
And I think that's unfortunate because that's clearly not true throughout the course of Christian history, first of all. Second, the implication of that view is that quite literally lots of Christians throughout history are going to hell, I mean, essentially, because we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. But we don't believe that we always have the right interpretation of it. So there's a difference in that. We believe that it's the inerrant, infallible Word of God, but we don't always believe that we have the right interpretation of it. And so, not all opinions are created equal. You have someone affirming the things that we had said at the beginning, that these, this is what unifies us in terms of creation. But then they go to the Bible and they kind of haphazardly walk through it and they don't take it word for word. They don't look at the words that are there on the page. They kind of skim over it. Ah, it's probably metaphorical. And they just sort of go off on a lot of these different things in it where it basically kind of loses all meaning. Well, that's obviously an opinion that's not created equal. But when you, ha- you actually have people on both sides of the young earth and old earth debate that take the words of this text very seriously down to the original languages and say this is what that means and this is why that matters in relation to this text here. And some people come out with, I think there's room here in this account of creation that there could be some age to the earth. I I don't know of an old earth person. There, There might be, but I don't know of an old earth person that's saying there definitely is years on the earth. I think most of them are saying there could be. And it could be what they're saying. It could be 13.7 billion years old or whatever. But their point is, I don't think the text of Genesis 1 and 2 addresses that, the age of the earth. I think it addresses this. or It's, it's different in some way. And so long as people are agreeing with the things that we're unified on and they're taking the words of the text seriously and explaining where they come from in these views, that may be a view that we can take credibly. It's up to us to be able to train our eye to see what's right and what's not right, to balance it against the views of history. And look, church fathers in 100 and 200 AD, not long after Jesus, some of them discipled by the apostles themselves believed in instantaneous creation. That God just, there it was, everything was there. Not seven days. That makes some of us com- uncomfortable. They do different things with the, chapter 1. They say, this is what Moses is getting at with this week-long layout. But, so we have to learn to train our eyes as we look at the arguments that are being made. Are they taking the words of Scripture seriously? And do they agree with the things that have been agreed upon throughout church history for the last 2,000 years? Do they agree with the things that save you? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. So in essentials, there must be unity. But in non-essentials, there can be liberty. We just need to train our eye to figure out what those non-essentials are. Questions? Comments? Concerns? I've read the Bible so 
So, um, <laughs> um, that, no, you haven't missed it. Uh, but what, what, what Christians would say is they are part of the original children of Adam and Eve. So all of them. Right, right. I, I just don't yeah. think that God felt like he had to give us every detail in the right. beginning. Right, right. And I'm, based on what I'm hearing here, I'm an older guy or whatever. Right. You know, these days are not necessarily what we would call a day. Right, right. Uh, and that God probably well did guide certain parts of creation. You know, okay. And that's fine with me if he yeah. did it over millions of years and then decided, okay, now it's time for a man. But, yeah. But it's, a, it's a, a almost insane thing to me for people to say, okay, there's no explanation for Right. It's fine to skip years of, you know, of, of, you know skip entire generations. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. And yet, the information here is so accurate, line by line, day by day, that we know that the earth is 4,000 Right. Now, let me back up. Let me just correct one thing real quick. Okay. Because the people that would say 4,004 B.C. are saying no skipping in the genealogy. Like, the genealogy is straightforward and is, is uh, per, person by person, year by year. Yeah, and Matthew? Are you talking about Matthew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. I said that when I was at the Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no question. No question. The, the issue is, like, uh, I think for a lot of people that would say it's a straightforward, and this is just me playing kind of devil's advocate, so to speak. Um, the the, the geneal- genealogical account in Genesis 5 is different than the rest of the genealogies. When you read it, it's like Adam was 163 years old when he had Seth, and then he lived to be however long after that, 900 and something, and then he died. And then Seth had whenever he was this old, and then his son had when he was this old. So you, it's a little bit different because they're like given years how old the person was whenever they had this. And so... Uh, I think it makes a lot of it makes some people uncomfortable to say that they would skip when it was that specific down to the detail, and that's why Bishop Usher goes back and he starts counting all the dates, and he says this is what we came to. Those same people would have to be completely comfortable with skipping the entire mention of where these other people came from. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but but essentially what they would say is, look, in in in, okay, Adam and Eve had three sons that are named, right? So there had to be some girls in there, right? <laughs> to, to multiply. They just, they just did. So they would, they would, I think, be comfortable with, well, there's lots of information about stuff like that that we don't have, for sure. And, but I understand where you're coming from, and that's honestly where a lot of the other positions, even some of the young earth positions are coming from as well, is saying, well, look, we clearly don't have all the information. And God didn't see fit to give us information. In fact, some people are saying God created everything ex nihilo, and we'll go over this in a, in a week, but God created everything ex nihilo in Genesis 1, 1. And what we have after that is something entirely different. And it's, uh, so 
there's a lot of different views of people actually taking the words of the Hebrew text and saying, let's take these seriously. Let's take these, these words that God actually used very seriously. Let's interpret them really for what they mean and, and what happens. Uh, I think we get maybe something different than him giving us uh, uh, an account of, of the beginning of the earth. But some people disagree with that. And that's what I'm saying. There's, there's liberty there. And I think what that means for us is that we can say, I can sit down with my brother who identifies God creating everything ex nihilo, God creating man in his image, God, create, God doing this. I can sit down. We agree on those things. We disagree on the age of the earth. I can present my view and he can present his. And so long as it is within the yard, we can walk away brother and sister or brother and brother, whatever. We can walk away as fellow believers in Christ, as Christians. And we can warn each other, you're getting pretty close to the fence. You know, you're getting out there. And bring each other back in. That's the importance of identifying what are we unified on and where is their liberty. So that we can turn to our neighbor and say, listen, you said this the other day. And I don't think that meshes with scripture at all. Even where there's liberty. Does that make sense? You see? You see? It's, a, it's important that we identify those things so we can say, look, this is well within the bounds of Christian history. This is well within the bounds of what's, what's acceptable. This is not. Yes, Sean. Well, then I don't know if I'll be able to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Yeah, I think I think most of, most of the time I've heard a young Earth person talk about genetics. They've usually said within the human genome, or fill in the blank, the the canine genome or whatever. Within that genome is the ability to uh, adapt and change. So, like, you may not have had a golden retriever on day, on day whatever, five or whatever it was, six. You may not have had a golden retriever, but you had everything within the capabilities of the genome to eventually get to a golden retriever, you know, a hundred years later or whatever. That we could breed two dogs together and get to a golden retriever. It's well within the genome, even though we couldn't necessarily pull it out and see it, right? Does that, that make sense? But we were created with that capability. Now, how a geneticist would respond to that, I don't know. And I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not a geneticist. I want to do all this so that I can get to the text of Scripture and actually walk through it. That's really what I want to do is just kind of say, here's where we're unified, here's where, where we can be, where there's liberty. Yeah. Right. And I, I guess you think about it like a painting. When you draw a painting, you know, you don't go in and one day and then draw, you know, a tiny little, you know, piece of dirt and whatever. You, you draw the 
Sure, yeah. And then you're done. And that's the way they would have to look at it. But, but the reason that will never be persuasion is that the people who are looking at, at what we do know, and frankly, I personally believe that God gave us intelligence for a reason, and, and, and the facts are not incongruent with the God, but that they're more congruent with there's more time involved. That's, you know, and the, the facts are always going to look that way in terms of with what we have now to date and look at what, you know, what, how long yeah. And here's what I would say. I would, I would really encourage you to do this, um, regardless of which side you're on. If you're an old earth guy, I would encourage you to look into, uh, I think it's called CRI. Somebody has probably heard of this, Creation Research Institute. Anybody? Yes, you've heard of that? CRI. I would just encourage you to, to look into that and just read it. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong or that you're right or wrong. I'm just saying I would encourage you to look into it and just challenge your own, your own assumptions. And the same would be true of somebody in like the, uh, the, the young earth camp. I would challenge you to look at some of the old earth creationists, people that are, are uh, saying old earth, and, but that are believing in the Bible. Um, I'm trying to think of off the top of my head some of the people that, that uh, purport those. John Selhammer is one of them in, Gen, in the, his book Genesis Unbound. He at least leaves room for uh, an old earth, but he takes the text of, of Genesis seriously, and he, he interprets it for what it is, and um, so it, that's pretty good, but that would challenge your way of thinking on this, and, and really just to kind of, uh, if nothing else, make your understanding of the subject matter sharper, and so that you would know what to, how to answer, and how to, how to answer those objections. I think that's helpful for anybody to do. Um, but it's, it just needs to be understood what you're doing. You're, you're, I want to challenge my own assumptions. I, I don't think I've ever read a book that I agree with everything that it's written, and I shouldn't. Goodness gracious. Why should I, I only read I think it's difficult for us to maybe come to a proper conclusion or the same conclusion that you might come to. Right. Yeah. We have one interpretation. Yeah. Right. And it would be hard for me to go right. back and get the scholarly. Yeah, you know. Well. Yeah, and it's it's a one one of the things. And John Salehammer's book is is can be somewhat dense, but um, you know, um, there's a proverb that says uh, I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but um, the fool's argument appears sane until it's cross-examined. <laughs> So the, the point is, the point is pretty clear. Like the first person to make an argument, you read John Salehammer's book and let's say you understand it cover to cover, you read it, it's going to sound, hey, that sounds pretty good. Until you read somebody who's critiquing John Salehammer and you go, oh, those are the holes that I didn't even see were there. You know, I do that all the time. That, that's, that's true of me. Um, I think what it just, it, it, it kind of, I think it should tell us, look, with the things that we're unified on, I'd use this illustration in the first, the first week. There's closed-handed theology. Things that we are unified on, the church has always been unified on, that are matters of salvation, I have my hand firmly around. No one is going to pry those out of my hand. God created everything out of nothing, created man out of the dirt. Even if I can't answer the objections of somebody that would say that didn't happen, even if I can't answer that, I'm saying, well, I believe that that's what happened. So there you go. Um, Nothing's going to pry it out of my hand. 
But then there's a lot of open-handed things that I go, I don't know, but when I look at the text, I see this and this, and I make these connections, and that's what I think is going on here. But it requires us coming to the text humbly and saying, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all of it figured out. And I, I'm not sure. And you make an old earth argument and you use the text of scripture and that sounds pretty, that sounds logical. But then you go read a guy from Christian Research Institute and you listen to what he has to say and you go, well, that sounds pretty logical too. And then you go, you know, and, and it's not that you're, but you're coming to the text humbly and you're saying, look, anybody that, that, that goes, yeah, I think you have to kind of throw out Genesis 1. Well, that's when we go, well, I can't even, I can't entertain this view. It's not created equal, okay? Does that make sense? So it, it requires you to come to the text humbly. It requires you training your eye to not necessarily understand every word that's used, but, but to say, is this guy taking the text seriously? Okay, this is possible, maybe. You know, and that's when you can bounce things off. Me and plenty of other people in this congregation to say, I read this, what do you think about it? And, and ha- have other people engage in conversation. Uh, it's important to do those things. Just as far as, like what Bill was talking about last week, just being, inclining our minds more academically to seek out answers and not be scared. I'm not scared of what Christopher Hitchens or some atheist is going to say about biology or whatever. I'm not scared of that. I believe the Bible's true. And if it's true, then he's going to be proven a fool. So then, fine. Let him say what he's got to say. Does that make sense? Go ahead, David. Sorry, Tom's going to be mad at me. What makes me comfortable with this position and uncomfortable with this position? Yeah, I I think the biggest thing, two two biggest things, they affirm all of those things we're unified on. They clearly affirm all of those things we're unified on. So the position itself, as they go through Genesis 1 and 2 in this case, they would affirm all the things that Christian church has been unified on throughout history. And then when they present their view they're taking seriously the verses that are presented there. And they're saying, okay, so like with the, maybe they say the days are longer. They say, look at the word yom in Hebrew. You can see it here in this text. Here it is, yom. It's used as ages, days, many days, long period of time. And here it's used as, you know, what we've always thought is a 24-hour period. Is it possible to, right? So, but they're taking the word seriously. They're They're looking at the words and saying, they're not, glossing over these things and saying, well, these, no, you're going to have to ignore some of that, right? So, but it still requires me leaving an open hand. I'm still not going to listen to him and be so convinced that I'm like, yep, that's it. Everybody else is wrong. You either believe what I believe or you're going to hell. Right? Like, I'm still not doing that. I'm still going, I, I think that's a really good argument. I've read a ton of views on creation. I've read young earth. I've read old earth. I've read everything in between. And nobody's view is flawless. None of them. Right. I think for that, it's really training us in evangelism. We're answering the objections of the culture coming to us. It's training us in evangelism. What we do in studying the word and understanding it, it's for the world. It's not simply for us. Yes, it's for us. It benefits us. But it's for the world. They're going to ask you questions about creation. What are you going to tell them? If we don't read, if we don't understand, we don't know, we're just going to say, duh. What good is that? We need to answer the questions that they're asking. And having come to conclusions, guidelines, 
Yeah. And I think, and, and I, th- and I think it's, it's, I think it's comforting for the person coming to faith to understand that there's liberty in some of these positions. I can't tell you how many Christians, how many people that are not Christians that are, you're sharing the gospel, I'm sharing the gospel with, and they, they would say, well, I don't believe in that young earth stuff. Like young earth equals, equals Christian. There's plenty of Christians that are not young earth creationists. So there's, there's liberty in this view. But let's look at Genesis 1, and then you come to a conclusion on that inside these parameters. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Or Tom's going to be really mad at me. Heavenly Father, I pray that all of the things that are discussed tonight only further the unity inside the church, being resolved to what we agree on, um, permitting liberty where there has been disagreement. And I pray that what we've talked about is right, is good, is uplifting, and if it's not, I pray that it would be forgotten. Um, more than anything, I pray that it would be for the building up of the body in understanding and wisdom and knowledge and depth of insight so that we can be, to study to show ourselves approved, that we can move out into the community around us and make disciples of the world, of all the people that we come across, that we can share within the gospel and be equipped with knowledge, understanding, and, and steadfastness in all the things that we're unified in. Present to them a compelling argument. The creator of the universe. And for mankind fallen into sin. And for that same creator to send his son into the world to die for us. Pray that argument that we present for the world would be winsome and would be good and that we would see plenty of people come to know Christ because of it. Pray that all that would be done here would be for the purpose of that. In Jesus' name, amen.